0: Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.
1: Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. Uh, Today on the show, we're going to talk about the Braves offense, especially Ozzie Albies and Ronald Acuna, and how fantastically impressive the Atlanta Braves have been so far this season. Is the Cleveland offense actually back in action? The bullpen's been a huge problem, but a team that got off to a really slow start this year has been crushing the ball lately. And finally, what you need to know about the shift. We put out a ton of new shift data, positioning data, all sorts of fun stuff on baseballsavat.com. Please check that out. Today, we're going to start with the Braves, the shockingly effective Braves, 25-16. and 16. Their 6-10 winning percentage is best in the National League, fourth best in baseball. They've scored 221 runs, third in baseball behind the Yankees and the, and the Red Sox, Matt, are you shocked by this, or are you excited by this, or did you expect this?
2: I am surprised. Uh, we talked about the Braves a couple weeks ago. We hit on, like, it'll, like are they for real? Whoa. What's in it? They've, they've kind of kept <laughs> winning. And, you know, it's 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 an exciting team with Acuna and Albies. They also have Nick Markakis, a personal favorite of mine, having a career year at the uh, ripe young age of, I guess, 34. Uh, but... The more, again, similar to the conversation we had a couple weeks ago, I'm kind of like the more I look at the numbers, I'm like, ah, eh, this doesn't really well, seem sustainable.
1: That's sort of why I wanted to bring it up again because we did talk about this a few weeks ago, and at the time I said, oh no, they're not gonna, this is not gonna last, and the numbers say it's not gonna last, and it sort of has lasted so far. Uh, they now have a 332 weighted on base that is second in the majors behind the Yankees. That's pretty good. But they also have a uh, 332 expected weighted on base that's 18th in Major League Baseball. I know it sounds weird that the two numbers that are identical could have such a large gap, but that's kind of what's happened early in the season thanks to the very cold weather. They are 24th in hard hit rate. Now, here's one thing that they're doing very, very well. Two things, actually. They have struck out. uh, They're non-pitchers, so just the regular batters. 18% of the time, that is the best in baseball. So they're not striking out. That's really good. Enormous caveat coming. I know everybody in the age of strikeouts wants to go and say, well, if you're not striking out, that must mean you're a great team. The Astros last year had the fewest strikeouts in baseball. Kansas City, Detroit, Cincinnati, also among the five best strikeout (laughs) rates in baseball. So it is good to not strike out. I would strongly hesitate before you make the correlation. Simply not striking out makes you a good offense. Uh, What I did find interesting, though, they have a 68.8% zone swing rate. That means on pitches in the zone, they swing 68.8% of the time. Highest in baseball, as we stress constantly on the show, swing at strikes, don't swing at garbage. Uh, That is a big deal for them. And we've seen that, obviously, for the Red Sox being a big deal. So it does seem like there are are some uh, good signs here. Although, uh, you know, when I look up and down this lineup, uh, and what I have handy here is OPS Plus, right? So where 100 is league average, pretty much everyone they've put out there this year, with the exception of Ender and Ciarte, has been average or better. And, you know, Ryan Flaherty is still somehow hitting. 293, 386, 404. I'm not buying that, really. Um, But, you know, obviously... I mean, neither
2: really are the (laughs) Braves because they signed and called up Jose Bautista to play third base. (laughs) A guy who hasn't hasn't played third base in years.
1: Uh, So before we get to Albies and Acuna, I do think we need to point out that somehow Freddie Freeman remains underrated. You don't think about him, I don't think, as one of the five best players in baseball. Like, he's a star, no doubt. But I don't think you think about him in the way you think of Trout. You know, Uh, and if you look at... Uh, top expected weighted on base for the year this list by the way is extremely satisfying here's all the guys who have had a minimum of 100 plate appearances and here's the top seven for expected weighted on base number one Mookie Betts unsurprisingly number two Freddie Freeman just ahead of Harper Trout Votto JD Martinez and Chris Bryant that is a fantastic list Freddie Freeman is second on that list he's got a 325 average 432 on base 5.76 5.76 slugging. I think it's easy to forget that before he got hurt last year, he was off to another ridiculous start, probably would have been in the MVP conversation. Freddie Freeman somehow underrated, as far as I'm concerned, and I think X-Wilba shows that.
2: And we'll get to him, a, we'll get to shifts a little more later in the show, but one thing I've always found interesting about Freeman is he's one of the few elite left-handed, I'll say power hitter, he's not a pure slugger, but he's hits with, you know, a lot of extra base power, that I wouldn't say shift-proof, but he really sprays the ball, particularly on line drives. Um, but even ground balls, like he's not an extreme. He's not as extreme. You can go to Baseball Savant.com and look this up for yourself. Um, he does get shifted on ground balls, but when you look at his spray chart, typically like it balls to the outfield. Short line drives, fly balls, everything. He's all around the field. So he's not someone that you can easily position against. And I think that's something that hes uh, I've always found interesting about him uh, compared to a lot of his peers.
1: When you think about the Braves offense, I think everybody thinks about Ozzy Albies and Ronald Acuna, obviously. So which one of them is more impressive to you? Obviously, they're young. Acuna is not 21 until December. Albies is not 22 until January. Uh, that's a big deal, which we'll get to in a second. But which, which one has really shown you more? Uh, I, I
2: mean... I think I quote-unquote buy Acuna more. Um, doesn't mean I don't think Albies is, isn't going to be an impact player because he clearly is and will continue to be, but it's it's the, the overall stat line is kind of weird. You know, he's tied for the lead league with 13 home runs, but...
1: He's second only to Mookie Betts in extra base hits, which is crazy to me. Yeah,
2: but he, I mean, he's only got a 316 OVP because of a 5% walk rate, and... It just sort of feels like that. I mean, the home run per fly ball is twenty percent. You know, so basically, like
1: he's he's overperforming, is what you say? Yeah, he's his, overperforming. He, I mean, his expected weighted on base right now is three forty eight, and his actual is three seventy one. So there's there's some truth. to that. Yeah,
2: three forty eight. That's like good, but not great. And Acuna actually has a higher expected weighted on base, which right. you know I think is would be surprising to some, but that's because he hits the ball a lot more authoritatively than uh, Albies does.
1: Acuna uh, over the last week one forty eight. 281, 296. 32 plate appearances, obviously, let's not go nuts about it. Uh, coming back to Earth, slightly. But here's what I find interesting about these two guys. Uh, as I said, extremely young. And I was interested when have we ever seen a, a duo of hitters this young uh, and this productive in baseball history? And the answer so far is pretty much never. Uh, if you look at the entirety of baseball history, at least going back to 1901, There's only been four teams who have ever had two players who are age 21 or younger, have at least 300 plate appearances, and being at least league average, which we defined as 100 uh, OPS+, Plus, basically because baseball reference makes it very easy to search these things in the play index. So only four teams have had two guys who have played most of a season and had a league average year together. Some of these teams are guys you've never heard of. The 1904 Phillies had Johnny Lush and Sherry McGee, although I believe Sherry McGee ended up having a very good career. Some of these teams are actually fantastic. The 1939 Red Sox... Bobby Doerr and Ted Williams, that worked out okay. The 1965 Houston Astros, Joe Morgan and Rusty Staub, that worked out pretty much okay. And then uh, the 1973 Milwaukee Brewers, Bob Coluccio, who I'll say I've never heard of, uh, and Daryl Porter, who ended up having a pretty nice career. That's a decent start
2: right there. A little history lesson for you folks, because I just looked up Bob Coluccio, knowing nothing about him. Um, it sort of speaks to the the hitting environment of the time he played. So in 1973, age 21 for the Milwaukee Brewers, He hit 224, 311, 411, which was good for a 105 (laughs) OPS plus. But like, if you just looked at that stat line, you would not think it was above average season. But he did have 15 homers, 21 doubles, and eight triples. So kind of uh, uh, clearly had some gap gap power and a little bit of speed. But uh, only lasted a total of five years in the majors, uh, 1200 plate appearances, a career 220, 305, 353 line. So basically right in line with his his first year can you
1: look up sherry mcgee i believe he ended up being a hall of famer uh but like 1904 i can't honestly remember sherry with an s uh mcgee m-a-g-e-e while we're talking so only those four teams are the only four teams that have ever had two league average hitters uh 21 or younger only two of those teams had that but with a 115 ops plus that's where these guys are right now if they both end up with a 120 ops plus by the end of the year no one will have ever done that. So, I, you know, there's there's youth and there's two guys up at the same time, and this is potentially a duo we haven't seen before. At least the guys, the show.
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's what makes the Braves one of the most you know they like the maybe uh, my MLB TV go-to team right now because they're they're winning. I always love watching Freeman hit. You throw these two guys into the mix, and my personal favorite, Markakis, who is trying to. Uh, Continuous quest at 3,000 hits. I was going
1: to say, can we, can we diverge for a second here? I've never seen Matt so excited than when he gets to talk about maybe Nick Marcakis being the least likely 3,000-hit guy uh, ever.
2: It's gaining steam. The conversation is gaining steam. He's having the best year of his career. Um, he could make his 1st I think he'll make his first all-star team ever, for whatever that's worth. I, I think I disagree. I think I disagree. Uh, but whatever, that's, whatever, he's actually having the season people kind of expect him to have when he was a huge prospect— and he had like an eight-win season when he was like 23 with the Orioles, and basically he just sort of went from there to kind of a career of slightly above average. Uh, and is one of I think right now only like four players ever to have 2,000 hits and not make an All-Star team. But I think that's going to change. I don't think it is. did. You look up Sherry McGee? Yes, I do. I've got Sherry McGee right in front of me. Is he a Hall of Famer? Uh, does not specify. No, not on this page. He had a uh, age 19 in 1904, hit 277, 308, 409, good for a 122. OPS plus with 15 doubles, 12 triples, three homers.
1: Okay. Well, I think the Braves are, uh, you know, we haven't even really talked about their pitching. Like their bullpen's been really good. Daniel Winkler has been shockingly good. But the Braves uh, are are very clearly in it, just ahead of the Phillies and the a- Analyst. And I still think the Nationals are probably the best team in that division. But the Braves are making it very, very interesting. And the uh, the StatCast numbers behind it, uh, I don't know. Well, I'm not buying it totally yet. But I said that a month ago, and so far I've been wrong. And I guess it's... Open to whether I'll be wrong again. I mean,
2: the, the NL the NL wild card race is completely wide open, and it's going to be a lot of fun. The AL is kind of boring, particularly with the Cano news. You kind of take probably take the Mariners a little bit, try and oh, knock I think, them the bag. I think
1: that I, that will cost them three or so wins, and they didn't have three wins to give.
2: So basically, I mean, right now in the AL, it's essentially one team is going to win the NL AL Central, and we'll get to the AL Central in a second. AL East, Yankees, or Red Sox, are going to win it. AL West. Probably Astros or Angels, and then those the second place teams will win in will play in the wild card game. What's going to be really interesting is because I think the Astros will eventually run away from the Angels. Shohei
1: Otani in the wild card Ohtani
2: game. Otani basically, if the Yankees and Red Sox go down to the final weekend, and the Angels can rest Otani, they're That's, going to basically have rested Otani waiting for one, the loser of the NL AL East, who's been like fighting to the fighting to the final weekend. Let's
1: let's assume the AL East teams are better, so Otani and Trout march into Fenway or Yankee Stadium. You know, winner take all. That's I mean, that's I good, that's want good, that. That's good TV. I want that. That's good TV. All right, let's 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 move to the American League here. Uh, I, I kind of wanted to... We looked at Albies. I said Albies had the second most extra base hits in baseball. Number one is Mookie Betts. Number two is Albies. Tied for third place are a pair of teammates, Jose Ramirez and Francisco Lindor. Have you noticed that the Indians have actually been hitting the ball uh, a lot lately? I don't think people have, have paid attention to this because their bullpen has been such a debacle. And we'll get to that in a second. Yeah, too. I mean, they lead, they lead
2: the... Uh... Ale Central with a 20 and 21 run. And they might
1: not by the time you hear this because they're about to play this afternoon. Uh, The Tigers could be in first place by the end of the day today, which is wild to me. And,
2: you know, I was kidding Mike this morning. One of my hot takes in our preseason podcast was that the Twins would finish within five games of the Indians. And that looked like a terrible pick as of like 10 days ago. But since then, the Twins have gone seven and three. The Indians have gone three and seven. And lo and behold, they are now a half game behind. The Indians, Buxton's back, making a difference with his speed. Sano's still in the DL, starting to look like maybe one of those guys who's just going to yep. kind of always be hurt. But anyway, back to the Indians. Right,
1: through April 15th, so basically a month ago, and and uh, they, they had like a four-day uh, stretch in the middle of April where they didn't play because of terrible weather. Through April 15th, Cleveland had a two sixty-six weighted on base last. They had a 200 281 .326 team line that is atrocious, but they had a 76-point gap between their expected weighted on base and their actual weighted on base easily the most in baseball and there was good news even at the time they had a 40.7 hard hit percentage that was the sixth best in baseball and if you remember uh, the talk of baseball early in the year was just how bad the weather was everywhere right I think Cleveland got affected by this maybe more than everybody else because obviously in Cleveland it was cold they were playing other American League central teams you know Detroit Kansas City it was cold uh, they looked absolutely a mess but there were good underlying signs we knew this team was more talented than that. Since April 15th, in the last 30 days, they have a 355 weighted on base, the best in baseball over the last month. They're hitting 271, 337, 492 over the last month. That 76 point gap has narrowed to 13 points, so they're getting a lot more production for what they put into it. Their hard hit rate, 41%, it's third best, but they were hitting the ball hard uh, before. But what's interesting to me is that it mostly comes down to two guys uh, Francisco Lindor. Uh, over the last 30 days, has a 487 weighted on base. That is fifth best of anybody with 50 plate appearances. Jose Ramirez, who is an absolute superstar, is just ahead of him fourth best. So there's two Cleveland guys in the top five uh, behind Miguel Cabrera, Mookie Betts, and Manny Machado. Yes, Miguel Cabrera has been crushing the ball. No one's been paying attention. I know he's hurt now, uh, but that is one of our predictions that came true. The hard-hit numbers from last year uh, were, were pretty predictive in this case. Overall, uh, they are second in the, in the majors over the last 30 days with a 357 expected winning on base. The Cleveland Indians have been crushing the ball, but it's mostly two guys. Michael Brantley's been pretty good. Tyler and Equin's been pretty good, but those are the guys I believe. Brantley's been actually surprisingly good, yeah. you know,
2: for the first time, sort of healthy in a couple of years, been hitting very well. Jose Ramirez has really emerged into like basically a superstar. He's tied with Albies and yeah. four others for the lead with thirteen home runs. It's kind of amazing right now. I'm gonna go on another little bit of a tangent. Um of those six names, three of them are like five foot nine or less. Mookie Betts has thirteen home runs, Ozzy Albies. Albies has thirteen. Um Ramirez. And I mean it's that is interesting. It is fascinating. And also I was thinking about this in the context of the MLB draft this year because one of the top prospects is a 5 foot 7 second baseman from Oregon State named Nick Madrigal. We have him ranked 3rd on the pipeline list. And it's hard to fathom that five years ago or ten years ago, anyone with that frame would be ranked number third on a draft rankings list. But after, I mean, I kind of think Pedroia was first and then Altuve, and now we're seeing Betts and Albies and Ramirez. Like, the way players are being scouted, like, like, some of these biases are, are... are being like swept away.
1: You're right. I mean, you can't see what Altuve has done and say, "Well, I'm not going to draft a short guy." I mean, I mean like, a five
2: foot seven second baseman is the number three prospect in the draft. <laughs> to me, that's crazy. And you know, he's going to get a, get a nice bonus in a few months, and he owes a lot of it to these guys right now who are sort of like dispelling a lot of myths about what short guys can do in terms of hitting
1: with power. That's that is really interesting. And right, and th- the thing about Cleveland is, uh, speaking of second baseman. What is wrong with Jason Kipnis? Is he is he bad or is he unlucky? I think it's probably a little bit of both. If you look at Jason Kipnis over the last couple of years, 2015 was really good. Had a 124 weighted runs created plus. 2016, still pretty good. 116, remember, more 100 is league average. Last year, not very good at all. 82, uh, was injured, played center field for a little bit. This year so far, he's been a mess. A 172 average, 260 on base, 248 slugging. That is essentially unplayable, but... His expected numbers are a lot better than that. Uh, his expected average is 240, much better than the 172. Still not great. Expected weighted on base is 331, much better than the 233 actual. It's the second biggest gap behind only Matt Carpenter. So I will buy that there is some unfortunate luck here, but I will also say that this is kind of a uh, a trend with Jason Kipnis. I don't have a ton of faith in him rebounding to be the player he once was.
2: And they have like a not a clear like not a like n- no brainer player ready to kind of step in, but Eric Gonzalez. Was a decent prospect. He's played well when played. Like when he's when he actually got on the field. I mean, limited playing time this year, he's hitting um 367, 406, 633. In his career, his career line is 282, 307, 449 This year, his weight on base is 434. Expected weight on base is 369, which is still pretty good. Again, it's very limited playing time, but you know, Kidness has also had some, some some injury problems. Gonzalez is almost certainly a better fielder at this point in his career. So they have someone, but the, the problem is like Kipnis; it's not really a, there's not a lot of value as a bench guy. Whereas Gonzalez does. I don't know. It's I don't think they're going to bench Kipnis just yet, but it's
1: feels like they they should. I mean, you've also got the, if you want to go out and get a, a a third baseman, you could always put Ramirez back at second. I mean, that's that's what they did something last year too.
2: Yeah, um, you know, I was playing some uh, throwing some crazy scenarios I guess, in terms of what the Mariners could do uh, with Cano out. And maybe, you know, like, the, if they were willing to take on Kipnis' salary, they could just, like, take him. I mean, the the, the Indians tried to basically give him away all offseason. And the only, well, reason, the only reason he's not a Met right now is because the Mets wouldn't take on that's his whole salary.
1: Because the, the the one thing about the Cano uh, suspension is now the marriages don't have to pay him. So they get back, like, $12 million or so this year. So they should have some money. I mean, who knows if... Jason Kipnis is actually an upgrade over, you know, putting D. Gordon back at second and putting Heredia uh, or Ben Gamal at well, second? I thing. mean, no matter what, now,
2: you make a great point, though. They could go out and do any number of things to upgrade their team. And because, you know, they have Gordon now, at least they feel comfortable with him at center or second base, they can actually have some kind of option. They can either get fill either position, essentially, to... To replace Canelo.
1: So the takeaway here is that the Cleveland offense over the last thirty days has been the best in baseball, and I think that is stunning to me. And Alonzo's waking too. Let's not yes, forget, hit the ball exactly. very hard. But it's such a weird team. Like their bullpen has been unbelievably bad. <laughs> I mean, this is the reason that they're a five hundred team. Uh, over the last thirty days, seven hundred four ERA. That's worst. Twenty one point nine percent strikeout rate. That's twenty first. Ten point seven percent walk rate. That's twenty fourth. Three seventy eight weighted on base. That's worst. Three fifty eight weight, expected weighted on base. Second worst, now part of that came when Andrew Miller was injured, obviously. Uh, I think losing Brian Shaw to Colorado last offseason was a big loss for them. But, you know, Miller came back, uh, and he blew the game against the Tigers. He looked terrible yesterday. And it's not just him. I mean, Zach McAllister and Dan Otero both have ERAs north of seven. You remember Tyler Olson last year was the guy who didn't allow a run all season. Now he's got like a six-and-a-half ERA. Uh, Nick Goody was shockingly, like, quietly good last year. Not so much this year. You know, they tried out Matt Belisle, didn't really work so well. This team uh, badly needs like three different bullpen arms. And that's, I mean, as you said, they're not running away with this thing.
2: I will make the point that uh, Brian Shaw, who again is leading the league in appearances. Shocking. He led the league in appearances the previous two years and also in 2014, uh, has a a cores inflated 4.65, uh, 4.95 ERA, which is good for a a 93 ERA plus. He actually hasn't been that good on his own, but um, it's I'm not sure he'd be the savior that they, they're looking for, we guess the bull put his trouble. I wanna make one more point about the Indians before we go to talking about shifts, which is um, as I noted before, they're in first place with a twenty and twenty-one record. In the wildcard era it has never happened that a team has won a division with a losing record. However, and we forget this because of the strike, at the time of the ninety-four strike, the Texas Rangers were leading leading the AO West with a 52 and 62 record
1: <laughs> I did not remember
2: that. so they were going they were going to win the division with a sub 500 record, so that that would have actually been a PR disaster for the first year of the of the, the of the wild card three division era. Um, obviously, there was a whole other PR disaster, but it should be noted yeah, that that what happened that was going to happen, and it could happen again this year. Although I do think, when all of a sudden done, the Indians will end up winning that division by somewhere between three and five. Well, games. I was
1: going to say the Cleveland's going to win that division with like an 85 and 77 record, and then get smoked by the Angels after they win the wild card game. So that'll be a lot of fun. Let's talk about our brand new toy at Baseball Savant. We've got all the StatCast data, StatCast powered by Amazon Web Services. We introduced this morning at BaseballSavant.com, both in leaderboards and in searchable queries, all sorts of fascinating shift and positional data. I really encourage you to go play with it and check it out. There's really so much more uh, than we can get to on this podcast, but I wrote an article that basically said, here are the most, nine most important things you need to know about the shift. We're going to go through some of that here. And uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, the shift is taking over baseball. It's pretty much all anybody talks about. And for the first time, you can really look at that in a in a granular way because you can look at what happens when the ball is not put in play against the shift. And I know that sounds weird. It's actually really important. It's not just about hitting ground balls to a, a deep second baseman or an extra infielder. So we're going to get to all that. Let's talk about some of the most interesting things. Do you know which team uses an infield shift the most in baseball? And let me clarify this. A shift shift. Three men on one side of second base. That's the way we're calling it. There's lots of other ways to describe it, but that is the way we're defining it here. Which team shifts the most? The Astros. The Astros. Of course it's the Astros. They're the ones who put like 25 guys on the right side against Joey Gallo. Can I just say, I do think Joey Gallo should try to bunt because I think that would just stop teams from doing that. Not because I think he'll be successful. I think Joey Gallo probably is a terrible bunter. And also... He was doing this against Charlie Morton. He threw his 98 with a movement. This is not easy.
2: Well, that's uh, Joe Sheehan mentioned this on, on Twitter the other day. He made the point. He basically said, you know, when you watch a game, the announcers always lament when a guy can't get a bunt down, especially in late innings. But compare what relievers are throwing now to what, you know, like what the current announcers were playing, what, 15, 20 years ago, if not longer, what they had to face when they tried to bunt. It is such a different game. You have Charlie, every team has Charlie Morton coming out of the pen right. throwing 98 with like a crazy slider. Like getting a bunt down is really hard. What I actually wonder is if it's easier for someone like Joey Gallo just to try and like slap the ball the other way. Cause actually, then you might actually get an extra base hit.
1: Well, that requires him to make contact in the first place, which is an issue. But that is the entire point. I don't think you shift Joey Gallo so that you have a guy to collect an infield hit. You do it so that you get him to stop doing what he does best, which is to destroy baseballs. Uh, to his pull side. You try to mess with him. I think that's that's the biggest takeaway. And it's not just about batting average on balls in play, which is where I think people have thought about this in the past. I mean,
2: the shift they had against him the other day was like a cartoon. It was, like it a was carto- great. It was like a it. cartoon. <laughs> I loved
1: it. Uh, the Astros have shifted the most uh, on 43.5% of their plate appearances this year. They were the most last year. They were the most of the year before. Shifting does not by itself make you a great defense. The Cubs very rarely shift. The Orioles shift a lot. The Astros do it well. They do it often. Which team has added... The most shifts since last year. I can't even ask you these questions because you're looking at the same list of notes I am. I'll tell you it's the Kansas City Royals. And I'm actually, I was really pleased by this. Do uh, you know why? Because the Royals were pretty open about saying they were going to do that in this spring. Ned Yost uh, talked to uh, Jeff Flanagan, our, our Royals.com beat reporter, in the spring, and he said, Let's give it a wholehearted try and see. Let's get out of our comfort level a little bit, or at least me out of my comfort level. So when he says, yes, we're going to try to shift more, and then the data says they're actually shifting a ton more. Last year, about 7% of the time, 25th most. This year, up to 38% of the time. That's an enormous uh, difference. Second only behind the Astros. And they shift righty batters more than anybody. It's really fascinating to see a team change this much.
2: I mean, the point about you made before about shifting doesn't necessarily make you a good defense or a good run prevention team. To me, what stands out at the Astros is that they they seem to me the most in sync in terms of not only shifting, but also getting their pitchers to buy into it and to adjust, the, to execute in a way that serves the shift. You know, we've seen the way the Astros have gotten Justin Verlander to sort of change his repertoire since they got him. Charlie Morton is a different pitcher since coming. Garrett Cole, the same thing. So to me, it stands to reason that if they're getting guys to change their repertoires, they're also creating strategies to try and induce, basically induce guys to hit into the shift. Uh,
1: Yes and no, because I remember talking to a major league hitter about this a couple years ago, and he was a lefty. And he said, well, when they shift me, I expect to see pitches on the inside corner, so I'll grind into the shift. And then they start throwing me 96 on the outside corner, and I'm not going to pull that, and he's like, I'm so confused. What do I do with that? (laughs) And again, I think that's half the point. It's just to mess with guys, get them out of their comfort zone, not see what you expect to see, you know, and that's got to screw with you as a hitter. Uh, Which righty hitter is getting shifted the most in baseball. I'm trying to remember if we talked about this on this show like two and a half years ago, if anybody uh, was listening at the time, Chris Bryant is the righty hitter is getting shifted the most. We talked about this, I wrote about this in 2016, that he is completely ineffective to the opposite field. He very rarely hits to the opposite field, and when he does, his production is terrible. I'm surprised it took this long for him to get shifted almost 55% of the time. That's the most of any righty hitter.
2: Is, are we going to see him getting the Joey Gallo shift, but... Uh...
1: I mean, I you know, obviously you got to keep the first baseman over there yes. if you're ready, so it can't be like that much. Chris Bryant so far this year has pulled 84% of his ground balls. Uh, if you look at the last three seasons from 2016 to today, he has the eighth worst opposite field with rated runs created plus. So going with the opposite field, he's got a 219 on base, a 333 slugging. If you're Chris Bryant, you crush balls, and he's having a really good year to the pull field and I think opposing defenses are finally realizing that, so that's the whole strategy. You load up on his pull side, because maybe you catch a few more balls, and if he says, well, I'm going to go the other way, you say, great, you're terrible the other way. <laughs> uh, we'll be thrilled if you go the other way. And I think that's that's part of it, too, is if the opposing defense is so happy if you go the other way, then maybe we should stop yelling at hitters to go the other way.
2: And that to me, that's the biggest change and shifting the last couple of years, is Right-hander is getting shifted a lot more now. Yes, absolutely. Um That's you know that was sort of uncharted territory. It started. I feel like it started with Pools, but then you start to see it with a lot more guys. Bryant, Cespedes. Now it's like a pretty common thing to have three infielders on the left side of second base.
1: So we define shifts as you said as three infielders uh, to one side of second base. But there are a lot of other you know minor adjustments that teams can make. For the moment, we have kind of grouped all of those into what we're calling strategic positioning. Uh, we'll get more granular with it as time goes on, but for now we're trying to keep it simple. And the way we define strategic is when any of the four infielders are not in their regularly defined positions, right? Uh, and that means that maybe it's a second baseman who's deeper than usual, but there's not three infielders. Maybe a shortstop is playing up the middle, but hasn't quite crossed over the bag. All that kind of stuff we're grouping together. It is admittedly imperfect, but it's a good start. The Yankees... And the Cardinals make the most minor adjustments. So the Yankees on 18% of all of their pitches, the Cardinals on 17% of all of their plate appearances make these minor strategic adjustments. And I think that's cool. We've never really been able to measure that in a good way before. I don't actually have anything to add to that other than that this is a thing they're doing. I can tell you right now (laughs) if it's good or bad. Uh, But it it is interesting because, you know, it's not just about this huge overshift or these Joey Gallo shifts. There are these minor uh, pitch-to-pitch adjustments that teams can make. And that's, that's what I'm excited to kind of dig into a little more uh, and see if these things matter or not. I've heard a lot of Yankee fans complaining about their shifts. I wonder if it's actually hurting them, but I have no data to back that up. What do you think most people think the job of the shift is?
2: Um, to reduce singles, basically. To
1: reduce singles, uh, and it does. And that, that is one thing the shift does very well. If you look uh, just at Major League—I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the wrong way to do it first, because I think this is the way people think about this. If you just look at uh, Major League Baseball's production versus the shift since the start of last year— 276 average on balls in play against the shift 306 without the shift so that's an easy takeaway hey the shift works no that is a a wrong and bad way to look at it because you have guys like let's say Joey Gallo who gets shifted all the time and you have guys like Jose Altuve who gets shifted almost none of the time and now you're not really looking at the difference between shift and not shift or looking at the difference between Chris Davis and Jose Altuve yeah. <laughs> which is a problem so the way we've done this, and I'm not going to repeat this every time, but for the remainder of our list here, uh, we found there were 201 guys since the start of last season who saw at least 100 pitches both against the shift and then not against the shift. So then we compared them to each other, and that means we uh, kind of get past a little bit the uh, the talent difference, and now we're trying to get a little more to shift versus not shift. Uh, these 201 hitters, they really they run the uh, the entire spectrum of talent. I mean Judge and Blackman and Stanton and Arenado and Donaldson are in this group. Also, Tucker Barnhart, and Carlos Osuahe. So, there's a lot of guys in here. <laughs> Those are baseball players. Uh, when you look at just these guys, it's still true, though. Uh, batting average in balls in play, uh, it, it, these guys hit 299 without the shift, 281 against the shift, as expected. Uh, it hurt righties a little bit more. They hit 302 without the shift, 277 with it. Uh, then it did lefties, 298 without, 283 with. But as you'd expect, it hurt batting average on both sides. Fewer singles, the shift does its job. End of story, right? No, not right. Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> um, the shift also, this is, this is what we're learning for the first time because we've never had this data out there before. The shift looks like it may increase walks, which I found to be pretty interesting. It's, uh, our group had a, a, a almost 10% walk rate against the shift and 9% walk rate without the shift. Almost a full percent is actually kind of a big deal. That's hundreds or thousands of, of, of more walks. I mean, this, 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 uh,
2: this makes sense to me because the other thing is that the shift also does is slightly increases home runs. You know, and as Justin Turner said, uh, I think it was last year when, we, when you did a story about this, he said, you don't beat the shift by hitting around it or through it. You beat the shift by hitting over it. Um, And 6% of contacts for home runs against the shift, 6.1% without the shift. So
1: 67 point, six point seven per- with. Yes. And 6.1% without. So it's like a slight
2: yeah. increase with the shift. And, you know, we were talking to a, a, uh, a major league pitcher before the season, uh, who shall remain nameless. Uh, and he said that basically he thinks that hitters now, their approach is essentially go up to the plate, prepared to swing at everything, but only swing when it's a pitch they know they can basically hit a home run. <laughs> and so I think that that mindset is basically, you know, there's very few hitters now that are going up being defensive who are going to be reacting. They're going up sort of intending to swing and, let, and basically not – and if, it, if it's not in a zone, out of the hand. Out of the hand, if they don't think, oh, this is going to be a pitch I can drive, they lay off. That was his basically philosophy, and he said a jive with somewhat of what his teammates told him. And I would think that the shift – would only enhance that mindset.
1: Were you surprised, because I was, that the shift may actually decrease the number of fastballs hitters see? Our guys, uh, when they saw the shift, and I'll, I defined fastballs here as four seams, two seams sinkers, uh, against the shift they saw 52.9%, without the shift, 54.7%. That was interesting to me.
2: I mean, not necessarily, because I think that a well-executed, like, nothing can get a player to roll over on a pitch more than a well-executed changeup. Yes. So I think that, like, and that's, you know, you get a week to sort of get, like, a, a ground ball to their pull side. So I, that 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 that's maybe facts in my mind. I don't know. I've, I've, I'm sort of thinking about this for the first time right now. So that's my, my first instinct is maybe not
1: so crazy. The, and finally, I'm not, you know, the net effect may be that the shift doesn't matter as much as people think it does. Our group hit uh, had a 336 WOBA against the shift and a 334 WOBA against not the shift. Now, I don't. I don't want that to be like the definitive. Oh, the shift doesn't matter; it doesn't make a difference because this is one group of players I looked at, and people who are smarter than me will go do a much deeper, uh, in-depth look at this. But it is interesting to me, and it kind of makes sense. Like the shift takes away most singles, but it gives back a few more for guys who are willing to do it. Uh, it may increase walks, it may increase home runs, and when you kind of get it all out in the wash, the net effect may not be as much as you think. But I also don't know that you can find all this in the numbers. Like, what is the what is the value of screwing with Joey Gallo so much that he doesn't? You know, hit to strength, right? That's that's kind of hard to, to bake in here.
2: Yeah, and the um the other thing that I found really interesting about this is looking at that group of right hand the the group of batters you talked about before the two hundred and one guys who had been shifted hundred times and not shifted hundred times sort of our, our, our I guess our control group for lack of a better term the right-handed batters in that group had a twenty four percent strikeout rate with no shift and a 19.2% strikeout rate with the shift, which suggests to me that the right-handed batters are doing a, a better job of sort of shortening, or at least they're trying to shorten their swing maybe, and beat the shift. Because that is a drastic reduction in strikeout rate, whereas the lefties in that group, they actually struck out more against the shift.
1: Yeah, I wonder if it's just a different sort of shift because obviously – uh, if you're a right-handed hitter, you, you still have to have the first baseman over there, right? Like maybe the shifts against lefties are a little – there are more people, I guess is what I'm trying to yeah. say. I, I don't know. But that's that's fun because not knowing uh, leaves questions for us to get to. Yeah, for uh, sure. That is our show. So please check all that out at BaseballSavant.com. This is the MLB.com StackAss Podcast.